Well, season six, episode four of The Simpsons. The classic episode, Itchy and Scratchy Land, begins with Homer sitting on his couch with a Bible in his hand, and the kids run up to him and talking about how we want to go to Itchy and Scratchy Land, but Dad, you say it's too expensive. And Homer says, everything's too expensive these days. Look at this Bible I just got, 15 bucks. And talk about a preachy book. Everybody's a sinner, except this one guy. Referring, of course, to Jesus. Homer was right. When you read through the Bible, you find everybody is bad messed up. God does not Photoshop anybody in the Bible. There's nobody that he is, he is presenting to us uh, that we should trust in other than Jesus himself. Whether it be Adam or whether it be Noah or whether it be Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or you could just go through the list of everybody who God ever used in the scriptures and what you find is they're all sinners. They're all failures. They have all kinds of reasons on their resume as to why God shouldn't be using them. But God loves to use messed up people. He loves to use people that shouldn't be usable in order to make his glory known so that nobody will get praise but him. And this morning as we come to Exodus chapters 3 and 4, we are going to see somebody who fits that bill pretty well. Moses. Moses, the the man whom God is going to use greatly and really, I mean, is is a hero of the faith, we are going to see that he is a, yeah, he's a sinner, just like me and, and you. If you weren't here last week, the book of Exodus uh, it breaks down into kind of two major sections, chapters 1 through 18, where we see the rescue of God's people, where God's power is put on display through the, the plagues and the Red Sea. And then in chapter 19 through 40, we see the revelation to God's people, where God uh, provides for his people with manna and water and, and the law, and that he's, he's doing all of what he's doing here in Exodus with delivering them from Egypt so that they may know that he is the Lord, and so that we may know that he is the Lord and that we might worship him as he, he deserves. Last week we, we left off where we saw Moses had been delivered. He grew up in Pharaoh's house, but then he in his own strength attempted to, uh, to, to deliver uh, his, his people. He ended up murdering someone, and then it gets found out, so he takes off and he, he flees Egypt and he winds up in uh, Midian where he uh, there uh, yeah, meets some ladies who need some assistance at the well and he delivers them. And then Jethro um, offers his daughter uh, Zipporah to, to Moses uh, in marriage and they get married and he has a wife and that's where we left off last time. The Moses, the failure, is out in Midian, and God is maybe never going to use him again. It might be what he's wondering, but God had a plan. Look at the end of chapter 2, Exodus 2, 23, says, During those many days, which we know to be 40 years, Acts 7 tells us that, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. 
Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. That's where we left off. Hanging, wondering, okay, God sees, He hears, but what will God do now? Moses, the guy we thought was going to be the deliverer, he failed. He's out in Midian now. God's going to hear, but how will He act how will he keep his covenant with his people? And, and what's going to happen to Moses? What we're going to see this morning is that God hasn't forgotten about Moses. In fact, he's going to be and has been shaping and preparing Moses to deliver Israel. But that he needs some refinement because he is not perfect. But rather, as we're going to see, he is a fearful, sinful, insecure, angry guy. Which brings us to our big idea for Exodus 3 and 4 this morning. That God uses imperfect people for His perfect purposes so that all will know that He alone is worthy of worship. God uses imperfect people for His perfect purposes so that all will know that He alone is worthy of worship. Verses Uh, 1 through 10, we're going to see that God declares deliverance. And then in verses 11 down through 417 or 420, we're going to see that God calls a deliverer. God declares deliverance. This is his encounter with Moses. Remember, 40 years have gone by. Verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he, Moses, looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sign, why the bush is not consumed burned. So again, Moses has left Egypt. He's in the grasslands of Midian here. And, and what's, what's he doing there? Well, God gave him a wife. And when you get a wife, you get a father-in-law. And when you get a father-in-law, you get a what? You get a job. Right, exactly. And this is why he's out here. And now he's a shepherd, okay? And he is out there tending this this flock, okay, and he ventures to the west side of the wilderness and he comes to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, we're going to learn later that this mountain Horeb has another name. Anybody know what it is? Mount Sinai. This is Mount Sinai. It's, it's going he's going to become a very prominent place, but right now it's called Horeb, the mountain of, of God. Now, in chapter 7, verse 7, we learn that Moses is 80 years old at this point. That means he had 40 years in Egypt, and now he's had 40 years out here with sheep. 40 years. It's a long time. If you're Moses, and you've been out there for 40 years, how do you feel? I mean, you go from being this 
esteemed, envied son of Pharaoh to now a forgotten failure who's, who's out walking his father-in-law's sheep. And, and Genesis 46 tells us that, that shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. So this is not like a glamorous job. From the outside looking in, he, Moses, is a tragic waste of potential. He's lost his position, he's lost his power, he's lost his prosperity, and now he's got this menial job in a barren land. How do, if you were Moses, how would you feel out there? Humbled? I know I would always be regretful, confused. What happened? I thought the Lord wanted me to do this. Why this? It doesn't make any sense. And then there's shame. There's despair. There's so many things that he, he was likely feeling that certainly we would be feeling if we were there. Yet in the, in the midst of this, he's not been forgotten and now's the time that God's going to show it. And there's a miraculous event. He sees a bush burning with fire, yet it's not consumed. In the Hebrew, it's, it's really clear. It's, this, it's a continuous action. The bush is continually burning, but it's continually not consumed, which is a curious sight. I mean, a fire is one thing, but a fire he didn't start out there that when he looks at the bush is not being consumed, he wants to go over and see what's going on. Makes sense? Well, this is not a freak brush fire. This is an appearance of the angel of the Lord. This angel, this messenger who is identified with God and speaks as if he is God. Many suggest here he's the pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God because he acts as a mediator. What the text wants us to know is that Moses is about to encounter God Almighty. Now why might God appear in a burning bush? I mean, there's lots of ways God could show up. But why a burning bush? Well, I think in one sense it's symbolic of God's nature. He is an all-consuming fire. Exodus 24, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire. This is how God is. He is the all-burning one. The holy one set apart in light and glory and radiance. But it's also symbolic of God's people. Deuteronomy uh, 4.20 calls Egypt the furnace. It was the place where Egypt knew such suffering. It's like they were in a furnace. But they were not consumed there. Because God God kept them in the midst of their suffering. And it's interesting because it's the same thing that God's going to be doing with his people. He's going to move them out of the furnace of Egypt into another kind of furnace. A furnace of sanctification. In which he is going to burn off all of the dross that is in them to make them look more like himself. I don't know if you know this or not, but a silversmith, whenever they're making silver, uh, well, they don't make silver, they refine it. They take silver, and what they do is, is in order to, to get it to a place where it's usable, they'll, they'll put a fire underneath of it. And what it does is it, it heats up the metal to the, to the place where all of the, the impurities of the dross raises up to the top. And then over time, the, the heat burns off all of the dross so that the only thing that's left is pure metal. And the way that a silversmith knows 
that the metal is pure is when he can look down into it and see a perfect reflection of himself. This is exactly what God is doing with Israel. But before God is going to do that with Israel, by taking them out, he's going to be doing it to Moses. That's what he's been doing with him for these 40 years. More on that in just a little bit. Well, verse 4. When the Lord saw that he turned aside, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. First thing we need to notice here is that God calls to Moses personally. Moses, Moses. I think that's significant because Moses has been forgotten. I mean, Jethro knows him, his wife knows him, his new place knows him, but Egypt doesn't know him any longer. He's been forgotten, and I'm certain, as a man who has plenty of failures in my own life, there's times you wonder, but how sweet that the Lord would speak to him. Moses, Moses. He knows his name. And Moses responds, here I am. This is the same way that Abraham and Jacob and Samuel responded to him. And do you also notice, how does, what else does Moses do? There at the end of that, verse 6. He hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. This, by the way, is one of, those, one of those ways that you just know when everybody, you watch on some of the like, TBN sometimes where you have somebody who, who gets on and they're like, yeah, I had a, had a vision of God and me and God, we were talking and we were skateboarding and we were hanging out and me and God are buddies. Like you know that person has not encountered God. Because everybody who encounters God in the Bible falls down, covers their faith, face. Angels cry, holy, holy, holy. They can't, they got two wings just to cover their face because they can't look at him. Moses here encounters the Holy One of heaven. He has come down. And that's why he cautions him here. Do not come near. Take off your sandals standing on holy ground. The taking off of, of sandals was an ancient Near Eastern, Eastern uh, custom to show respect or, or honor. You see Joshua do the same thing later when he encounters the same angel of the Lord before he takes Israel into the promised land. So this ground isn't holy. You don't need to like go over to Israel and get you a plot of dirt and bring it home and that's special. What made it special was that God was there. That's what set it apart. And God introduces himself here. He says, I'm the same God who appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I'm the God of promise that you've heard of. This is important because we mentioned last week that everything that God is doing with Moses and with Israel in this exodus is rooted in what he promised to Abraham. So if you're taking my advice from last week and you're writing down little ACs uh, where, where this shows up, there's another place where the Abrahamic covenant shows up where God is fulfilling his promises to Abraham Isaac and Jacob. 
Well, verse 7, then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now... Behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Now, stop here for a moment. Again, if you're Moses, how are you hearing that? This is incredible news. This is what you wanted so long ago. This is what broke your heart when you were back in Egypt and you saw the oppression of your people. God has seen. He has heard he is going to deliver them he's going to take our people out of shackles and slavery and take them to a place of bounty and blessing the land of oppression is going to cease we're going to a place of promise the almighty's ear has heard from heaven hallelujah verse 10 come and i will send you to pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. This is where in Moses' mind the, the, retro, the record scratch happens. What? Now I'm all in with you saving your people, but I, <laughs> you got the wrong guy. This is a, there's a bit of a plot twist here for, for Moses. He, Moses, the failure, is going to be the instrument through which God is going to deliver his people. It's interesting here, in, 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 again in the Hebrew, it comes out very clearly that these are two commands. So now go to Pharaoh and bring out my people is, is a good interpretation. God is not asking Moses, hey, would you like to be a part of what I'm doing? He, this is not like, he's not checking, he's not feeling Moses out to see if Moses would like to do this. this is, he is commanding him. And Moses is about to freak out. And what ensues here is a verbal wrestling match with this barefooted shepherd and the holy God of heaven. And that's what the rest of this section is, is about. Which brings us to God calls his deliverer in verses 11 all the way through chapter 4 verse 17. Where we're going to see Moses and God go back and forth, back and forth. And, and Moses is going to respond with, with objections, veiled as questions, but objections about why he can't do what God is calling him to do. And God is going to counter all of his objections with promises. Moses is going to lift, list every reason why he shouldn't be the one to go do this, and God is going to redirect his attention with promises about how God is able to accomplish this through him. Excuse number one I'm inadequate. I'm inadequate. Verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and, and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. Now some say, well, this is just him being humble. So it, it would be right that he's inadequate. But it, it doesn't seem when you read through the rest of the, the next few chapters that that's what's motivating here. What's motivating him here is fear. 
Moses looks at himself and he sees no reason at all why God should use him. He's got no influence with Pharaoh. He's got no leadership skills. His resume ranks of failure. He's 80 years old. He's a washed up dude who's got anger issues and like, you know, I can kick the sheep sometimes, Lord. See, you know, I'm I'm not adequate. I think he's fearful here. And this is important because fear about being used by God is happening here to Moses because he's seeing himself apart from the power and the presence of God himself. He is weak. That's totally true. So when Moses says, I can't do it, God says, I know. So that God's promise is, I'll be with you. God's promise is, I'll be with you, verse 13. He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. What God wants Moses to do here is to get his eyes off of himself and to focus them on him. God says, I will be with you. God promises here his presence. You will not be alone. You will not lack strength because I will be with you. And then God says, I'll give you a sign and proof that I'm with you. Which, what's what's the sign? Yeah, when you get done doing what I tell you to do, you'll be back here worshiping. Well, thanks, Jesus. You know, I mean, like, can we have something a little more immediate? Like, so i got to go through the whole thing to see that you actually did it through me? God says the sign is, the way you'll know I'm with you is that I'll bring you back here and you will worship me, worship me right here with the people. Just a side note, very important to notice that everybody talks about wanting to experience God. God is most clearly experienced. Sure, he can show up in a burning bush. He does that sometimes. God is most normally experienced, if you will, when we step out in faith and obedience to what he calls us to do. He meets us in the obedience and empowers us. He meets us there when we step out in faith. That's when we see him and experience him. This is one of the reasons that so many people say the Christian life is so boring. is because they're not obeying God. Nobody who takes the gospel to unreached people or to their their neighbors who don't know Jesus thinks Christianity is boring. Nobody who's fighting sin thinks Christianity is boring. Nobody who's seeking to resist the world and to be a light in a dark age thinks Christianity is boring. It's only people who it's only theory for who think Christianity is boring. God says to Moses here, (laughs) I'll show you I'm with you when we come back here. And you'll say, God did that. Which also, did you notice here the goal of the deliverance? They come back here to worship him. God is rescuing his people that they might worship him. He's restoring them to their purpose to be a worshipful people. Now, Moses should say, you know what, God, that's amazing. Let's get after it. But that's not how it works. Excuse number two, verse 13 Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, they will ask, what is his name? 
What shall I say to them? So excuse number two here is, I'm ignorant. So he's inadequate at first, and now he says, I'm, I'm, I'm ignorant. Moses fears that he won't be able to answer their questions. I mean, last time they asked, who made you judge over us? This time they're going to ask, who's the God that sent you? And he feels ignorant to be able to answer that. I hear this so many times when we talk about evangelism. People are like, um, I, I think I need to do like a big course in apologetics before I can start talking to people about Jesus. Because I just don't know what to say. Now, we don't know exactly what's happened here. What, what exactly is, is behind this for Moses. Maybe centuries of slavery have, have led to spiritual amnesia. Where they know about him, but they don't know his name. Because God is going to give a name here that is, that is one that they, they wouldn't have known him by. But, but Moses pleads ignorant here. So God's going to give promise number two. He's going to say, my name is great. My name is great. That's his promise. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to this people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go, which is a command, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of all the ites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, Moses here He's pleading ignorant, right? But God's answer is more than sufficient. Your ignorance is overcome again by who I am, says the Lord. And what he does is he declares his name for Moses to hear and to believe and then to relay. Now, a person's name, it sums up basically their their character, who someone is or what they are like is wrapped up in their, their name. There's names that we could mention right now that would bring lots of things to mind. Well, God wants the same thing to happen. That when you hear his name, it brings things to mind about who he is, which is intended to invoke trust about who he is. He begins by saying, I am who I am. He wants Moses to know he is the ever-existing one. He is the everlasting creator and sustainer of the universe. He is, this God who's talking to him, is the self-sufficient one. He is dependent on no one else. He wants Moses to feel the vastness of who God is. I mean, let your mind, have you ever tried to do that, that deal where you try and count back to infinity? And you're like, you get to a place and then your mind explodes. It's a little bit of what God wants Moses to feel right here. I mean, imagine trying to capture the weight of this. That before the earth and before the solar system and before the galaxies and before the universe, he was. No beginning, no end, no assistance in anything, lacking nothing. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, for eternity, content and complete and filled with love and joy and glory, needing nothing. 
He says, that's who I am. Everything that exists is dependent upon him. He is wisdom. He is life. He is love. He is light. He is truth. He is the constant one who cannot be improved upon. He is who he is. He says, tell him that God sent you. And then he's going to give another name, the Lord, which is derived from this, this same verb here of, of the I am. It's, it's, you'll notice it's in all caps, L-O-R-D. The Lord sent you there in verse 15. Anytime, so there's, there's several different names that are used for God, prominent ones. The first is L, that's just God, G-O-D. It's the general name for God, the powerful one. Then you have L-O-R-D, capital L, all the other O-R-D is, is lowercase. That's the name Adonai. Uh, it, it declares his, 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 his rule, his lordship. But, but L-O-R-D with all caps, also known as Yahweh, it, it's, again, it's built on this, the I am. And this is the name that God uses to, to explain himself as the covenant-keeping God. He's the promise-making, promise-keeping God. This name of God, anybody want to guess how many times it shows up in the Hebrew Bible? 6,828. So you were off, probably, whatever your guess was. Maybe, maybe you guessed better, but I was off. That's a lot of times. Through the Old Testament, 39 books, 6,828 times, he wants you to know, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I'm the Lord. I'm the Lord. I'm the Lord. I make promises. I keep promises. That's who I am. Tell them that the all-existent one, the I am, who makes promises and keeps promises and never forgets a promise, he's the one who sent you. This is the God of your fathers, the same God, the ever-living one who showed up to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has come to you because he makes promises and he keeps every one of them. So again, if you want to put AC next to something, go ahead and do it again. I'm not going to do this every time it shows up, but I think it's just important to notice that God does everything that he does rooted in promises. He ain't a liar, and he wants his people to know that. I think it's also important to notice that he wasn't a liar for those 300 years of oppression either. All those years of their suffering where there seemed to be such silence, he was still alive. And he was still faithful. But God in his wisdom has chosen to act now at this point in history. Well, God commands, chapter 3, 16, go. Go to the elders and then go to Pharaoh and I'll be with you. But it's going to be a bumpy ride, Moses. Verse 18, they, the elders, will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to them, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Already here we get a glimmer of Pharaoh's sinful heart that's on display here. He won't obey God's command. Which we're going to see a lot more of this next week when we, when we, we meet Pharaoh and see how he, how he responds. But, but I think it's important for us, as we're sitting here, to not just observe all of this and how Moses is doing and, you know, kind of score him. Well, he's at a B minus so far. You know, and Pharaoh, well, he's definitely an F. He's not, he's not crushing it very much, is he? And to sit like, we're, like this isn't about us. So, for instance, do you, 
Do you delight in quickly obeying God when you hear His Word? Is that something you delight in? Or are you, are you maybe more like Pharaoh than we'd like to admit? Or more like Moses? Well, he says here that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand, which is interesting because Pharaoh's hand has been pretty mighty these years, but God's hand is more. Verse 20, so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold and jewelry for clothing, and you shall put them all on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians." God says, I'm going to overpower the most powerful man on the planet, and Israel's going to plunder the Egyptians without even raising a sword. Which the irony of justice here, I think, is supposed to strike us. The hands of the Egyptians have been stretched out to enslave Israel and have accumulated wealth at their expense. But God's hand will stretch out and free Israel and restore wealth to them in a way that they will know that God is the Lord. God is the God of justice. Most restoration does not happen in this life. Sometimes it does, but it's always on a small scale compared to what God will do. So in all of our waiting and our wanting against injustices, we've got to remember that there is a God who knows and sees, and one day He will make all things right. His name is great. Third excuse. If that wasn't enough for Moses, chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold! They will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Excuse number three, I'm insecure. I'm I'm insecure about this. Moses is insecure about his reception. What if if they don't believe me? What if if they don't like me? What if they unfriend me on Facebook? What if, you know, like, what, what if... Now, why is Moses so insecure and fearful here? Well, once again, he's listening to his heart rather than God's word. In chapter 318, God just told him they're going to believe. He just told him his plan is going to come to pass. He told you how the whole thing was going to go. I think it's important for us to notice here how fickle our hearts become if we don't listen to God's word. Charles Spurgeon said, half of our fears arise from neglect of the Bible. And I suspect that the other half arise from not believing and applying in faith what we do here. This is why God tells us in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. How do fears about how people respond to you affect the way that you respond to God? Are you afraid of what people will think of you? The Scriptures tell us that the fear of man is a a snare. 
This is why we need to hear God's word and receive God's word and listen to God's word. He says, I'm insecure. Well, promise number three that God gives here is, I'm powerful. You're insecure, but I'm, I'm powerful. And in chapter 4, verses 2 through 9 here, what he's going to do, he's going to give him three signs that he can take back. The Lord said to him, verse 2, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. <laughs> I bet he did. You throw that stick down, all of a sudden it starts slithering. Goodbye. Well, verse 4, but, but the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. Mm-mm, Lord. <laughs> it doesn't say that. It's missing in the Hebrew, but it's probably there. Um, probably not, but you know what I'm saying. Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. And then God explains why. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Now this staff likely holds significance for for two reasons. First, in Egypt, a staff was highly esteemed. It It was a symbol of power and authority. Well, God is going to often throughout this exodus be flashing this symbol in front of their face to show who has true power and authority. But then also for Moses, what's he been using this staff for for the past 40 years? Shepherding sheep. If that's the case, how how might you view that staff if you're Moses? Maybe it's just been this continual reminder of failure. But what's interesting about that is God's going to use it and he's going to transform that symbol to be a reminder that God showed up and that God is a God who can redeem all of our mess. He's that kind of God. And he will use us in spite of ourselves. Well, so that's the staff. The second one, verse 6, And again the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside the cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back in your cloak. So he put his hand back inside the cloak, and when he got it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. He says, if they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, that they may believe the latter sign. This healing of a skin disease. Now, I I think it's interesting to notice here that the reason he gives these signs is that they might believe. He's not just teaching Moses some cool magic tricks. He's He's giving him signs through which the people are to believe. And I, and I think, and you'll remember, this is the same when we studied the Gospel of Luke. This is the same reason Jesus did his miracles. He was doing his miracles, again, not just to create a circus, but he was doing them to prove that he has the authority to bring the message that he has. I think also we should notice here the patience of God. If they won't believe you, give them this one. How tender and merciful the Lord is with his fickle people. Well, then the third and final one, verse 9. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it out on the dry ground, and the water that you take from the Nile shall become blood on the ground. Now, that's obviously not one he could do right there in Midian, but it's going to be the first plague. It's going to be the first plague that God will do. It will be a sign to them. So he says, I'm insecure, but God says, yeah, but I'm powerful, and I'm going to give you these signs to prove it. Well, fourth excuse, verse 10, but Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. So excuse number four here, 
I'm inarticulate. I'm, I'm inarticulate. I can't speak good, Lord. He, he's unable to articulate. Now, we don't know if this means he forgot, forgot the language of, of Egypt or if he has a speech impediment or he stutters. We don't know. But we do know from history is that the, the Egyptian magicians were known to be eloquent. He feels I'm nothing like them. What limitations do you look at in your own self and say, these are the reasons God could never use me? Listen, y'all, before I, became a, before I became a Christian, I was a terrible public speaker. I hated it. I was not good at it at all. I would get in front of people and just fumble around. I mean, I still fumble, but less fumbling, less. Um, listen, I mean, I, I never read a book until I got saved. I read one book until I, before I got saved. It was the book Hatchet, which I read in 6th, 7th, 8th, and ninth grade, all for book reports. And I just, nobody ever checked to see if I was reading it. I never read anything. I cheated my whole way through college until I got saved. And then I was like, oh, I got to study. What am I going to do? I was lost. I had every reason. I didn't know anything about God. I didn't know anything about his word. I had tons of excuses. We all have them. Failures, sins. God says, I know. I know your issues. But he's got a promise. His promise is, I'll teach you. I'll teach you. Verse 11, then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. You notice here, God doesn't encourage him. Oh, Moses, no, no, no. No, your self-esteem should be high. You're good enough. You're smart enough. Doggone it. People like you. You're, Moses, just, you can do it, buddy. Like, that's not what God says to Moses at all. God didn't pick Moses because he was able. God says, I know. I know you better than you know you. I made tongues. I made ears. I made eyes. I'm the sovereign all-knowing one. But I promise to give you wisdom and power and to teach you what to say. This is the same promise that Jesus gave to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10 when they would be dragged before the court. He says, don't worry about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will teach you what to say when you need to know. You see, God knows that Moses has all of these issues. He didn't call Moses because he had it all together or because he was the best guy for the job. He just wants somebody who's willing, which is really the problem. And we see that. In the fifth excuse, which is basically, I'm just insubordinate. I'm insubordinate. I don't want to go, verse 13. But he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. Moses' heart here is exposed. I think this is what's been behind all the rest of it. He just does not want to do what God calls him to do. He doesn't want to leave. He wants God's will to be done. He just doesn't want it to be done through him. He'd rather just sit and listen about how somebody else did it. Which before we see God's response, I just want to ask you, is there, is there anything that you're unwilling to do that God wants you to do? Is there anything you're saying, no, Lord, I will not do this?
God has been very patient with Moses up to this point. But in verse 14, his patience runs out. His fifth promise is going to be, I'm adequate. I'm adequate. But God is angry. Verse 14, then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. God has had enough here. Again, in the original language, it says the nostrils of Yahweh burned. Like a bull snorting. He's angry here. He is patiently instructed. But after all of that, Moses is just unwilling to go. He is rejecting God's rule over him. He says, I just don't want to do it. But rather than God consume him in his anger here, God shows patient mercy. Verse 14. This is God. It's like, he says, is there not Aaron your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. How merciful the Lord. I mean, I don't know about you. This is a good reason I'm not God. I've been like, that's it. I'm done. Boom. Somebody else. But he's like, okay, fine. I'm going to, here, I'll put it in your brother's heart. Come on, Aaron. Should I go out? Maybe I should go out to Midian and visit Moses. Okay, let's go. So he puts it in, 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 in his heart. And then he says, okay, your brother's on his way. He can speak well. We're going to put you guys together as a team. Verse 15, you shall speak to him and put words in his mouth, and I will be uh, with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you what both to say. And he shall speak for you to the people and shall be with your mouth, and you shall be as God to him, and take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. This, by the way, is the first time that Aaron shows up. He is a Levite who you'll notice is going to act as an intercessor which is exactly what the descendants of Aaron, the Levites, the priests, will do. He's not really an interpreter here, but he's really just a channel for Moses' words. Now, God says, that's it, you're going, pack your bags, it's time to roll out. You are inadequate, Moses. You are ignorant, Moses. You are insecure, Moses. You are inarticulate. But I will be with you, and my name is great, and I'll prove my power, and I'll teach you what to say, but you will not be insubordinate. I am adequate for all of your weaknesses. I will supply all you need to do what I've called you to do. This is what God gives to Moses. One of the things John Henderson and I were talking about even this morning was about, do you notice how much scripture God gives to this conversation right here? I mean, it's really interesting that in Exodus began with seven verses that cover 300 years, and then in chapter 2, he gives half a chapter that cover 80 years, and here in chapters 3 and 4, there's a single conversation. God zooms in here, and he wants us to do the same, to to focus, to slow down, and to watch this interaction. Not that the rest of it is unimportant, but what happens with Moses right here is very important because this conversation exposes Moses' heart, but it also exposes our hearts because we're a whole lot like Moses in this story. I mean, for instance, just on that point, do you, do you, do you think carefully about your conversations with God? Or do you just kind of race through it? 
I mean, Five Minutes with God is a book that will sell at Lifeway, but that's not going to help you a lot. Do you, do you listen to him? Moses was just, he just kept coming back with excuse after excuse after excuse. He's not receiving and actually hearing these promises and letting the promises come on his heart and change him. He's just moving from one thing to the next, trying to get out of whatever God wants him to do, but God mercifully pursues him. Do you meditate on God's word? Do you turn off everything? Shut everything off and just come before him and say, God, speak to me through your word and receive it. Do you listen in order to be shaped by God's word? Do you come and say, God, help me to surrender to do whatever you will call me to do? Or do you constantly find yourself with excuses and objections as to why you can't. Well, Moses is going to obey here in verse 18. He goes back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Moses receives permission here from his father-in-law and his boss to return to Egypt. And you notice here the Lord gives him another encouragement. Forty years has been just long enough, Moses, to work in you, but also for that Pharaoh to die off. And I think it's important, again, here to, to know, we talked about this last week, that, that God takes the slow train here. God has not been in a hurry with Moses. It's been, well, 80 years, but 40 years there with sheep. He's going to do the same thing with Israel when he takes them out of Egypt. I don't know if you remember this or not. We'll see in a couple weeks. But but when God takes them out, it says he did not take them by uh, the way that was quickest, but he took them a different way that went by the Red Sea. God intentionally, when he took Israel out of Egypt, didn't take them the shortcut. He intentionally took them on the long path so that they had to go to the Red Sea. Because he had a plan for what he was going to do there that people would never forget. You see, God is happy to go slowly with his people. We're impatient. We like microwave Christianity and spirituality. God works with the crockpot meals. He go put it on, he'll turn it on. We go wait a little bit, let that thing warm up. Put a little something in, a couple hours. We'll be back later, put some more in, stir it up. God just going to do that thing. It's going to cook all night long. God loves to go slowly because he wants us to behold him. He wants Moses to know him. And Moses was not going to know him apart from this. And you've got to remember that in the midst of all of the slow train riding on sanctification with the Lord, that he wastes nothing. No pain, no suffering, no hours, no days, no years. Every moment he is teaching us about himself. He's helping us to know him. 
He's, he's equipping us to do what he's going to call us to do. Moses, get, Moses has no idea that this entire time he's been out there, he's been in God's workshop. For 40 years he was in training in Egypt, and for 40 years he's been training as a shepherd of sheep, which is going to be really important because what God has for him next, he's going to go back to Egypt to shepherd the flock of God out and bring them to that place that he'd been wandering for 40 years thinking that life was over. Moses had no clue that the entire time God was using all of that, including his failures and sins, to shape him and to mold him into the man that he had him to be. Brothers and sisters, we've got to know that God is always working a bigger picture. One of my favorite quotes from John Piper is that God is always doing 10,000 things in your life at one time, and you might know three of them. We're just not aware of what God is doing, but He is. That's why through this whole section, He keeps saying, look at me, Moses. Get your eyes off of Pharaoh and off of everybody else and off of yourself, and look at me. Listen to my word. Hear my promises. I make and I keep promises. And throughout this whole thing, God is pointing us to himself. And throughout this whole section, we see a mirror of what God is doing in all of history. We remember that Israel's enslavement in Egypt under Pharaoh is parallel to our enslavement in sin under Satan. And that just as God sent Moses to deliver them, God sent Jesus to enter into our afflictions and sufferings and sin to rescue us and to deliver us. And though Jesus is, is like Moses, he's also wonderfully different. Moses was not the hero of the story, but he's going to make us ache for somebody who's going to come and is going to do it right, who is Jesus, the true hero of the story. Moses was naturally unimpressive. I mean, he's, he's 80 years old here. He's got a speech impediment. He's not what you'd expect from a, a deliverer. Well, Jesus is the same. You remember Isaiah 53? Jesus had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He's not impressive from from the world's perspective. Moses went from, from the glory of Egypt to a lowly shepherd. Well, Jesus left glory of heaven and was born of a virgin and became a carpenter's son. Though Moses was, was feeble in speech, Jesus showed that he is God who's the sovereign over speech. Remember in Matthew 10, he he makes the blind see and the lame walk and the deaf hear. Moses encountered the I am, but Jesus said, I am. John 6, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. Moses encountered the I am. Jesus is the I am. Moses was the instrument to announce judgment and salvation. Jesus was the instrument on which judgment fell. The cross there where Jesus took the judgment that we deserve. And then he rose from the dead. And now declares salvation to all who will turn and believe. And then what does God do? God gives this great commission to go. Make disciples of all the nations. Go. Just as he told Moses, we who now are in Christ are called to go and to make disciples. But we can come up with every excuse as to why not. 
I'm inadequate, to which Jesus says, yeah, I am with you to the end of the age. Well, I'm ignorant. Well, all we need to know is that Jesus is the name at which every name, above every name, at which every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Yeah, but I'm insecure and weak. He says, I know. Consider your calling, brethren. I didn't pick the cream of the crop. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses to the end of the earth. You are insecure and weak, but the power of the Spirit will enable you. I'm inarticulate. I don't know what to say. John 14, 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. He gave that promise to the apostles, which is now in the Bibles that we hold here. This is why we read the Word. We come to the Word that we may receive it and believe Him. Listen, brothers and sisters, this church, the longer you hang out here, you will find that it's just not filled with a bunch of people who have it all together. That's not who God calls. He calls weak, broken, desperate, needy sinners who need the grace of God, just like Moses. And all the promises that he gave to Moses, Jesus has given us those same promises, that the power of his Holy Spirit will be with us no matter what he calls us to. So one of the things I want to encourage us to do, we're about to take the Lord's Supper here, is while we're meditating on Christ and what he has done, I want to encourage you to be reflecting where do you most find yourself like Moses? And, and how can you bring that to Jesus and ask for him to give you grace, that you would be willing to do whatever he calls you to do? And I encourage you throughout the rest of this day and this week to talk about that with other people, whether it be in your community group or friends or family. May we be a church that doesn't look to ourselves, but that looks to him and his power and to know that he is sufficient.